0: yeah my my i remember the first time somebody told me that i was witchy (laughs) i was only like 13 years old and i thought it was mean that they said that but then as i've gotten older i consider it such a compliment now
1: so the weirdest thing happened i asked bb buell if she wanted to be on this podcast and she said yes Thank you so much for listening, everybody. This is Nashville Demystified. I am your host, Alex Steed. Nashville Demystified is a show in which I get to know the city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. Nashville Demystified is made possible by Knack Factory, a video and content production house with offices here in the city. Hey, you need to stand out with great content and video. How, how else will people know who you are? That's how we learn about things these days. Knack Factory can help get you to that place and make you stand out in the ways that you need. Get in touch. They're the ones. Nashville Demystified is also distributed by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts made by Nashvillians. There are a number of great shows on the network, and they're all worth checking out. One of my favorites is My Fantasy Funeral, and this week's guest is the indomitable Jasmine Kaysett. Check it out. Jasmine is great. Uh, Her music is great. Everything she does is excellent. I mean, I think um, she's the coolest. (laughs) She talks about what her funeral should be like on that show, which is the premise of the show. So, B.B. B.B. Buell is a force of nature. It's a cliche to say about a person, I'm pretty sure, but it's the best way to describe her. It's the most accurate way. When she's in the room, you absolutely know it. She's 100% personality. B.B. is a musician, Rick Derringer and Rick Ocasek produced her first EP back in 81. Later, she'd go on to record under the name The Gargoyles, and again, B.B. Buell, on and off for decades. She has been around in so many contexts. She was a model discovered at 17 by Eileen Ford, the legendary Eileen Ford. She was eventually a Playboy Playmate in 1974, and known for her relationships with a number of rock stars, including Todd Rundgren. It's well known that she was one of the three inspirations for Cameron Crowe's Penny Lane character and Almost Famous. Her daughter is actress and former model Liv Tyler, for God's sake. And early on, uh, BB managed Tyler's modeling career, and she'd eventually discover and manage model and actress Cheris Mickelson. Uh, BB has lived. When I was a kid and lived in Maine, people would know the state because of Lighthouses and Lobster and Stephen King, and I'd find myself flabbergasted that they did not know us because BB lived there. She and Jim Wallerstein, now her husband, were pretty heavily involved in music there in the 90s and 2000s. Buell had family connections to the state and lived in Portland on and off for two decades. I was so interested in her from afar, well, afar within Maine, because especially back then, the state was such an insular place and it was wild to me to have someone there uh, like Bibi who lived there but just knew the world. It was inspiring on some level to a kid who also wanted to know the world. Bibi moved to Nashville in 2012 and here we just kind of talk. We talk about Nashville a bit on the front end, but more broadly, we talk about life. Uh, we talk somewhat extensively about Rick Ocasek, BB's friend and the producer of her very first album, uh, who passed away somewhat unexpectedly last month. You know, Ocasek was obviously the frontman of the cars also a well-known producer for years and years and years. Um, his passing was unexpected and sad, and we discussed that. And we also talk about Buell's experience being in and out of the spotlight in various contexts over the past four decades. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. But first, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and the floating oceanic trash heap that is Facebook. Find us in those places and rate and subscribe to the show however you listen. It really does help, believe it or not, you know, let people know what we're doing. Without further ado, Phoebe Buell.
0: to move here in 2012 right and um, started to look for houses and then found a place that had just broken ground mm. so my realtor helped me snag that so I was able to you know contribute to how I wanted it to look mm. and tiles and that kind of thing and so I moved into the house
1: June of 2013. What brought you here? Like, why Nashville?
0: It was just something that I can't really explain. Mm. It it was an unseen force. I was asked to come and sing on an Eddie Arnold tribute record mm. that Plowboy Records was doing, and Shannon Pollard is the grandson of Eddie Arnold. And um, as you know, Eddie Arnold is a treasure in this town, mm. and he was a really smart guy. He... Got into real estate before other music people really figured that out, yeah. and he was you know, he owns ha- owned half of Granny White Pike. I mean, he was a brilliant guy. And when he passed away, I think it was pretty hard on his family, and his grandson uh, pretty much inherited his legacy. And uh, he wanted to do this tribute record, and they asked me to sing Hold You In My Heart. Mm. So they flew me in, and I uh, stayed, I think I stayed at the Lowe's, that beautiful hotel down sort of on the West End. Mm. And um, I remember walking to get coffee and passing all the magnolia trees and stuff and thinking, it reminded me of my childhood, because I'm from the South. Sure, I was born and raised in Virginia summers in North Carolina and I just felt this urge to be here and to be part of whatever this energy was I was feeling I almost felt like I, I, I had fallen into a vortex <laughs> yeah, sure and I could not under, even understand it's dog hot out it's May <laughs> and I'm thinking why would I want to be in this heat mm-hmm. and why am I feeling this way and then I got over to Studio B mm-hmm. and I felt all the spirits and the energy and I, I don't know. I'm just one of those people. I I frequently say that you don't choose Nashville. It chooses you. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a lot of people that have made the decision to move here and they don't last.
1: Sure. Sure.
0: They see it as some kind of fantasy and they move here looking for that fantasy or whatever that great hope is that people seem to feel Mm -hmm it's related to this city and a lot of other boom towns you, you know you've seen it happen before yes. austin mm-hmm. places like that and uh i, I don't know I, I you know i i think i'll definitely live in this area for the rest of my life i might travel and i might spend a lot of time over in the uk and things but i think this is probably where i'll live out my life
1: right i've said i've said that. Effortlessly, without thinking about it, like I I will live here forever, and I don't I don't know why that is. Do you know why? That is?
0: No, I don't. Because there's a lot of things I don't like about it here. Sure. You know what some, are those things? Well, some of the politics. Yeah. You know, you know I'm extremely democratic, and um, that's difficult. But a lot of uh, other artists and a lot of people that think very much like me are moving here. And so it, it, there's things that bother me, the the heat, but I do love all the rain. But right now we're having a dry spell.
1: Yeah. A very dry spell.
0: I mean, I mean, no town is perfect. Sure. I don't want to live in LA and I don't want to live in New York anymore either. (laughs) And, um, The only other place I could really see myself living if it wasn't here is the UK.
1: Why is that? What's what's appealing with the UK?
0: It's a a spiritual... I've I've known that city since the day I stepped my toenail in it when I was a young Mm -hmm. girl. The first trip I went at 19, I knew my way around the streets. I knew how to do everything. I knew where everything was. And my other fellow modeling girlfriends, they could not understand how I had this sense of the city. But... I obviously lived there in another life or something because I had no problem figuring out the lay of the land. I knew exactly where I was all the time. Mm -hmm. It was very easy for me to figure out the tube. Right. And um, you just feel the connection with certain places, Mm -hmm. you know.
1: Do you know? Have you always been like that? Have you always been a person who knows, like when you're? I've in a place- always
0: had that sixth sense and that intuitive thing. I, yeah, I was born that way.
1: Right. Right.
0: Yeah, my my. I remember the first time somebody told me that I was witchy. <laughs> I was only like 13 years old, and I thought it was mean that they said that. But then, as I've gotten older, I consider it such a compliment now.
1: Well, I, I'm so I'm from Portland, Maine, and, yes. and you uh, spent. I, a great I spent deal time in minutes. Portland.
0: I had a, a connection to Portland too. <laughs> um, what brought me to Portland though was not the same thing that brought me to to Nashville or to London, but I had actual family there. My mm. my cousin who was raised as my sister married into the Noise family, mm, right. and um, she married uh, Edward Noyes. Deering noises son and so i started going to portland at the age of 12 and after my daughter was born mm-hmm. my cousin annie who was reared as my sister and my mother uh, i was a single kid i was 23 when i had live mm-hmm. so we sort of had to band together as mm-hmm. a pack of wolves to raise this goddess that i raised and um I felt that same connection to Portland, but when I was in Portland, I took advantage of the music scene there Mm. It was unbelievable and I started all my bands there. I started my first band the b-sides there my when my first record came out in 81 I was already living in Portland I started my first band with all Portland musicians and my very first gig was the Ritz in New York with Portland musicians Mm -hmm. opening for Rick Derringer so then in 85, I started the Gargoyles in Portland. Yeah. It had a really healthy spin-off scene. Sort of, I, it likened it to Seattle mm-hmm. and Boston was kind of like, uh, you know, well, maybe uh, Portland, Oregon, or maybe Portland was like Portland, Oregon and Boston was like Seattle. Right. It, it was vibrant mm-hmm. and it was very easy to play that whole circuit. Right. The New England circuit, right. quick drive, six hours to New York from mm-hmm. Portland, four hours from Boston. Right. You know, so it was very easy to build your fan base. So I was constantly playing in the 80s. Right.
1: Well, I br- I bring that up in particular because I remember being being younger and knowing that you were there, mm-hmm. and that was so cool because <laughs> I was like that person because of the witchy thing that you said is that I was like I was like oh there's Ooh, a there's a person who knows, <laughs> there's a yeah. person who knows the world who lives in Portland well, there, you know what I
0: mean? <laughs> there was a a sophistication. With the people there, but you know, they don't wish for it to be right. um, a bigger city. Mm. I don't, I think Nashville is regretting w- wishing so hard that they could right. be Atlanta because it's becoming the city that everybody hoped it would become and now everybody's like what did i do right why did i wish this why did i hope this because the growth is so quick and so fast but the salaries are still in 1996
1: right absolutely
0: you know absolutely. people don't get paid what they should be get getting paid in a city that is growing at the rapid pace that nashville is so it's it's a rock and a hard place
1: yeah yeah, but you still enjoy living here.
0: Oh, of course I do. I mean, yeah. I live in the Green Hills, Oak Hill mm-hmm. area, and I can't even tell you how much my house has increased in value. Sure. But with that comes higher taxes, et cetera. I mean, we are big big grown ups, so we have to think about things that matter. But yes, of course I love living here. Mm-hmm. It's the best of all the things about New York and L.A. that I ever liked with a little bit of England, because we've got such a huge British population here. Sure. And um, now with the direct flights to London, you feel very connected to the real world, and you're almost in a perfect spot. Mm-hmm. You're much closer to everywhere than if you're in new york even
1: right because right. you're
0: so far east it it, and it only takes six or seven hours to drive to chicago mm-hmm. and four hours to drive to atlanta so if you're a musician this is a great place to live but i'm also still very inspired by the energy the whatever it is here it's healthy
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's a camaraderie with musicians that i really appreciate and uh, a, 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 a lack of jealousy and uh, almost a support buddy thing that I haven't seen in a long time. You know, right. it, since New York in the 70s, for God's
1: sake. Right. I was at a party last night with a, a bunch of musicians, and the, the, what I really enjoyed about it is that it didn't feel like everyone showed up to be seen there. It felt like everyone showed up to go to a party together. Right. And, an, <laughs> and a, you know,
0: when you live in LA and New York too, there's a stigma attached to playing too much or if, oh, you're playing that bar, you know, that kind of thing, oh, you can't play there, and really, you know, it's not like that here. Everybody jumps on stage whatever opportunity they can get. (laughs) One night it might be the Ryman, and one night it might be, uh, you know, the Exit Inn, or Third and Lindsley, or Mm -hmm. wherever. We've got so many great music venues here, and there's not that icky stigma uh, that goes w- with some of these other cities that that people think you need to be in mm-hmm. to quote unquote make it. Some right. people think, oh, if you're not in New York or LA, you're never going to make it. Well, things are changing. Right. It's almost like if you're in New York, you can't afford to live there. You're going to have to live upstate anyway or in mm-hmm. New Jersey. So, might as well join the Asbury Park music scene then, right, which right. is another one of my favorite music scenes.
1: Mm-hmm. What why so what are you working on here that you are excited about that you think is possible here
0: well, I mean, I'm just me. I work on what I work on wherever I go. It sure. doesn't really uh, change. I'm 66 years old. I, you know, I'm not really looking for brass rings. Right. I'm not, you know, I'm not on the merry-go-round going, wow, I wish I was as big as Madonna. Right. You know, ew. Yeah, I, I don't think like that. Yeah. I, I go where I can feel valid. I, I just love to create, I love to perform, I love to write, I love to feel like I can still discover something new. And I love exciting new talent. I love the music that comes out of here. We've got great bands here. We've got the Pink Fairies, we've got mm-hmm. Jack White, yeah. we've got the Blackfoot Gypsies, we've got the Black Keys, mm-hmm. we've got Margot Price. We have got class act music in this town, unlike any other city in the world. And it's hogwash that you have to be in LA and New York to feel to feel fulfilled or like you're gonna quote unquote, as the kids say, make it, you mm. know. But the industry's so different now. Right. You're working for what? Downloads? I, I I mean the product doesn't even sell anymore. So you have to have strong merchandise. And a strong grassroots following. You have mm-hmm. to have people that care about your music, and this is a great place to develop that. I mean, Nashville is pricing itself out of its own art. Sadly, mm-hmm. the musicians aren't going to be able to live there much longer, and they're going to have to be going to Hermitage and Hendersonville. But you know what? They don't seem to care. Right. Everybody's got a car here. That's yes. that's the similarity to, to L.A. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's so funny. You drive around in Green Hills, and sometimes it looks like you're in Hollywood. because right. <laughs> it, it, You see a little bit of everywhere in Nashville. Right. Freaks me out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I'll feel like I'm in London on these dreary, rainy days that we get sometimes that mm-hmm. are so English. Yeah. And... Uh, I don't feel much Portland here, though, I'll be honest, because no. <laughs> it's rare when we get any snow, and
1: right. I love snow. Right. It's just a sharp cold when it's cold, and then that's about it's it. It's a
0: strange cold. Yeah. I don't even feel it myself, personally. Mm-hmm. I could probably live in flip-flops all year round here. Sure. And, <laughs> I mean, I'm so used to bitter cold. Right. I've been in snowstorms that were so bad that... When you walked to your house, the snow came up to your neck. <laughs> I've, I've been there. I've lived that. Mm. And I loved it. I've, I, I, I love experiencing everything. I hate people that are caged by, Ooh, I've got to be cool and live in L.A. Or I've got to be cool and live in New York. Why? Mm. If you have to live in a shoebox, you know, why are you spending $4,000 to live in a closet? Right. It's it, well, that's not quality of life. Right. Why is that creative? When wow. I moved to New York, you could have a three story townhouse with a fireplace, three <laughs> bedrooms, two bathrooms, <laughs> eat in kitchen and a window in your uh, kitchen for $600 a month.
1: Right. <laughs> and that's, and
0: that's what I had, it, you know, you can't price. Once you start pricing out the heart and soul and art of what makes a city great, mm-hmm that's when things suffer. Right. But we have a president right now that doesn't care about the arts. He just unfunded yeah. it all. Right. He doesn't care about the environment. He doesn't care about rock and roll mm-hmm. like Obama did. Right. And so this is, you know, I'm gonna probably get a lot of hate right now from mm-hmm. people that are Republican. There's so many Republicans here, mm-hmm. but that's okay. There's so many Democrats too. What's happening is that Nashville is a speck of blue mm-hmm. In a sea of red, basically, right? It's a uh, hundred people a day are moving here from Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, and Austin that are not Republican. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a real independent vibe here too. There's a lot of people that aren't Republican or Democrat, right? So, I have plenty of friends. You're not going to have any friends in town if you don't have a little respect for people's political leanings. Mm-hmm. I don't have to agree with them. I don't have to see eye to eye with some of their philosophies, but I'm generously accepting of other people's ways of thinking. Right,
1: right. Can I ask you, have you always been as confident <laughs> as, you, as you are? as When you said earlier, you said, you know, um, I'm me. You know, and that's what your project is. Have you, has that always been your perspective?
0: Well, I don't know if that, the, the word confident, no, mm. I don't think any artist is really confident. We right. might be called self possessed, possibly. <laughs> sure. But confidence is something that any great artist will tell you they lack frequently, mm. Mm. or any even ungreat artist. It's, I get, you know, insecure and, and scared just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. But, One thing is that it's it's a fuel. When I hit a stage, something enters me that has nothing to do with the girl or the man that's sitting on this couch, you know. Um, I I wish I could be the man I am on stage when I'm off stage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because... I love what happens to me. Mm-hmm. I love what happens to my body. I, I become invincible. I could probably, you know, do 12 backflips and not even remember that, the, that I did that. Sure. Like people will say to me when I come off stage, you, you know, you jumped about 30 feet into the air. And I'm like, really? And I didn't die. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I don't have any recall of some of the physicality that I possess when I'm on stage. Right. Um, it, it's an interesting thing. Thing. it's almost like a drug mm-hmm. if if i can't do it i'm not that's where i lose happiness it's not how many records did i sell or how right. famous am i or i've been around famous people my whole life and i even gave birth to a famous person <laughs> so it's like it doesn't phase me people right. say oh my god what was it like to know so and so well what was it like uh to go to school in Norfolk, Virginia. People are people. And this is what I've learned through, throughout my very illustrious life. Is that uh, I, I just feel that fame doesn't change the fact that we're all humanoid. Right at all, as a matter of fact. It just makes some people bigger assholes, but <laughs> you know, they think they can get away with more. Speaking exactly of our president right now, who's pushing every envelope he can to get away with as much as he can yeah. to see how far he
1: can go. Did you ever meet him?
0: Donald Trump? Yeah. Of course I
1: did. Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm a New Yorker. Right, right. That's what I figured. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a Southern... I'm a Nash Yorker. <laughs> I lived most of my life in New York, yeah. you know, some years in Portland. I, you know, I've, I've tried living in LA and never made it past the summer. Sure, I'm just not a California girl. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, I grew up on the beach, but I'm not beachy. Right. I love the ocean. I can't survive without swimming in the ocean, mm-hmm. but there's a difference between the California version and the East coast version. When you grow up on the East coast, I th- there is a thing about East West. Mm-hmm. It's it, like a gang thing. Right. <laughs> but I love to visit California. I'm not anti-California. You right. know, my daughter's there right now making a series, mm-hmm. so I have to, you know, find the things about it that I do love, right. and I stay away from the things about it that are dangerous. There's a lot of danger in LA. You got to be careful.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I almost I was supposed to move to LA, and I, moved, I, I pivoted to here. And I'm glad that I didn't move to LA younger because I would have died. Well, that's
0: your spirit guides helping you and (laughs) making you go the right way.
1: Yeah, when you're
0: not, when your number isn't up, we somehow miraculously (laughs) find ourselves where we're supposed to be. Right. And we and we go, oh really? I should have figured that out. You know, sometimes your heart breaks, you get hurt, somebody rejects you. This one is mean to you, or that one blackballs you i mean i've been blackballed several times in the industry and not by men by women Mm. um it's 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 just something that comes with the territory and you and you you just you just keep going right you have to right (laughs) because even blackballs eventually wear off yeah and people lose their power or they die
1: Mm. (laughs) right Well, I think we thought, I think also, if you just think about the presidency six months ago, you thought this thing was going to go forever and it might still go forever, but it doesn't seem like that right now. (laughs) It's it's coming to a close (laughs) now. Do you, do you, um,
0: even his supporters don't want a dictator.
1: It seems to be the case. The, um, you just, you just lost a friend in Rick Kasich. Um, and I feel like probably it seems like a lot of people from that time are going,
0: it's horrible losing rick was was really um i can't even put it into words mm. it was so weird too because we were in florida we go to our annual trip down to 30a which is heaven you should go down there sometime and experience it and um the weirdest thing happened we were on the beach it was um the 15th of September and we were in our paradise and we were looking at all the dragonflies and this dragonfly came and looked me literally in the eyes. I know you're going to think I'm crazy, Mm. but this happened. And then we noticed that there was a seagull on the sand that was acting weird. It was a juvenile. Mm. So I went over to the seagull and I could see that that he could not breathe, that he was struggling and i thought oh my god this poor bird has probably swallowed a cigarette butt or plastic cap because there was and i knew that it was the end for this bird i i, I could just sense it and i did every i tried to give the bird water and the water was the bird was so receptive to the water and was like right. trying to get whatever was lodged in its throat i i I wish I had just taken my finger or given given it the Heimlich or sure. whatever. But of course it died right in front of my husband and me.
1: Mm.
0: On the eve of his birthday. His birthday was the next day, mm. the 16th. Mm. So we were very upset and I wrapped the bird in a white in white paper towels and carried it off the beach because I didn't want somebody to hurt it or mm-hmm. and took it to um this mass of greenery that I saw and tried to place it in a respectful way. Mm -hmm. then I literally walked into the house we were living in or staying in for that week and got the news that Rick had died. Mm -hmm. And the timing of it, because I always called Rick Birdman (laughs) and I had known him since I was 23 years old. He was like... One of my soulmates, he was not my lover. He was not my boyfriend. He was somebody that gave me my career. Mm. He literally said, you know what? I'm going to take you into the studio. I think you have talent. I don't care if everybody thinks you're a model or a playboy girl or the girl that dates Todd or the girl that dates this one or that. I want to help you make a record. Mm. Oh, and by the way, I'll even lend you my band. (sighs) I mean, okay. <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you replace something like that? Really? And then, to, when Liv was twelve, hmm. and we had moved back to the city again after living in Portland for a few years, Rick took the first pictures of her when she still had braces on mm. and a perm. Yeah. He did these mother and daughter photos of us and and some of her alone. And he said to me, you know, she's gonna wake up one day and be the most beautiful girl in the world. Yeah. And Liv looked at him and said, no, I'm not. You know, and <laughs> Rick just said, oh yeah, you are. And it, it literally happened. When she turned 13, something right. transformed. But it wasn't just the physicality of her beauty. It was this spirit that she had, this angelic beauty and sweetness that I've always uh, felt so fortunate to have that around me as her mother. But Rick has always been that person that was there for me. Mm -hmm. Always, always, always. And I was always there for the him. And I was there when he met Paulina. Mm. You know, all of it. She was 19. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. But they stayed together for 28 years, going on 30 years. I mean, they separated in 2017, but they were still very close. And poor Paulina is the one that found him. Yeah. I can't even imagine. But the symbolism of that bird sure. and... Then finding out how Rick passed away, I realized that there's something very powerful between people that you cannot always Mm. put into words. Mm -hmm. There's something profound. And whatever that symbolism was meant to bring to me, Mm. it was profound and real.
1: Yeah. I I hear that uh, totally. I respect that entirely. I see those things all the time, and I think people try to not see them.
0: I don't try to not see them, but I also can't unsee them. Right? You know, when you watch a bird die, that is an awful experience. But I was thinking, Rick died probably in his sleep, maybe stopped breathing. Mm-hmm. So I thought there was symbolism there. Sure. Something about it though brought comfort to me. I cannot mm-hmm. explain it. It's just so upsetting you know, part of me wants to keep talking about it, but then there's yeah. this other part of me that's like, no he he's not dead. you know.
1: can I ask you what 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 was what was he like day to day like how was he as a person? He just strikes me as a remarkable well, person very quiet yeah
0: and 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 very um stoic and 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 a, an amazingly crazy funny sense of humor. Mm. Uh, He was a doodler. He was constantly, if you were sitting with Rick and he was at a table and there was a pen there, he would be, while talking, would be drawing or doodling. Mm -hmm. He was incredibly um, soft-spoken and very opinionated, but there was a quiet genius in there, obviously. Mm -hmm. And if I would say something sometimes, he would say to me, "Mm." that's a good lyric. You should write that down. <laughs> cause one day I said, you know, cause I had just seen this, the most beautiful girl I had ever seen, but she was really rotund. Mm. She was big. And I said, Rick, she was like this rotund girl with a beautiful face. And he said, lyric, lyric, yeah. <laughs> rotund girl with a beautiful face. And I remember writing that down and I never did anything with it. But of course the next day on my husband's birthday, we wrote, a song with that line in it mm. while we were on the beach because Rick, Rick even said to me like 10 years later, he goes, did you ever use that line? It was so good. I'm going <laughs> to steal it if you don't use it. <laughs> and, um, I said, no, I didn't. And he said, well, you better use it. Right. One of, um, I, we would run into him in St. Barts too. Cause mm. he and Paulina were St. Bart's people i would have never even known about saint barts if it hadn't been for paulina because i used to go to saint martin Mm. and you have to take like a little plane to get over to saint barts and it was in 1992 that paulina turned me on to saint barts and then i became an addict like anybody that goes to saint barts it's, it's one of those places um and i remember it was my 55th birthday and i remember we were Jim, my husband, who I've been with for 20 years, we were in St. Bart's at this place called Maya, and my birthday's July 14th, which is the French F- Bastille Day, mm-hmm. 4th of July, or whatever you want to call it. And we walk in, and I didn't see Rick and Paulina. They were there with their children, Jonathan and Oliver, and we were at our table, you know, just talking. And I, I looked at my husband, and I said, you know, I, I, every time we come here, I always think of Rick and and... I turned like this, and Rick was walking towards (laughs) me on my birthday.
1: Right,
0: right. It was surreal. And those were the kind of things that always happened to me with Rick. Mm -hmm. One time in my early career, I'm going to tell you a story I'm not real proud of, but I'm going to tell it because I want you to understand just how important he was to me. Um, My record had come out. And I was getting ready to play The Paradise in Boston, and I was very nervous. And I did the show, and I got a very good response. But after I came off stage, I proceeded to get so drunk Mm. that I could not walk, literally. I mean, it was a bad drunk. It was very embarrassing and very stupid. It was probably 82, 83 somewhere in there and I had wanted to play the paradise and I had finally had played the paradise. The paradise meant something to me for a variety of reasons. And then it was also in the paradise that's, that Stephen and Liv saw each other again when Liv was nine years old Mm. in 1986 at a Todd Rundgren concert Mm. and sort of figured out that he was her father before she even said anything to me. Mm. She waited until 88 to actually confront me. But in 86, she had they had this profound connection here we go back to that key thing again but i was legless and i was literally just laying on whatever that backstage thing is at the paradise Mm -hmm. and i just remember these two guys coming and picking up picking me up on both sides and guess who was waiting for me (laughs) out At the backstage door in his Jaguar,
1: (laughs) Rick. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He put me in the car, scolded the shit out of me. Who's, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to, you can't keep doing this. If you do this, who's going to take you home? Mm. And uh, who's going to drive you home? (laughs) No, he said, who's going to drive you the next time? Right. He was really mad at me. I want you to not drink anymore, BB. And I'm like, well, I'm not a drunk. It's not like I have a problem or anything. And he's like, it could become a problem. Mm. I guess he was very sensitive about alcoholism because I think there was some somewhere in his family. But I never pried with Rick. He was a very quiet, private man, you right. know. Sometimes he would open up and tell you a lot, and sometimes he wouldn't, but... I, and he took me to this hotel in Boston, made sure I was taken care of, and left, you know, left me there. And he went home to his wife and children, of course. And uh, the next day, took me to the airport so I could fly back to Portland. Can you mm. imagine? Right. That was like a 10-second a flight. <laughs> but, uh... To make a long story short he was always there and i remember he called me up and he said timothy hutton is directing the video for drive Mm. he said what do you think do you you think you might want to do that video because he had been trying to get me in a couple of the videos Mm And at that point, I was like thinking, well, if I do a video, that people will think I'm a video girl, Mm -hmm. video vixen, Mm -hmm. and nobody will take me seriously as a musician. I was already fighting Playboy, centerfold, girlfriend of this one or that one, model, you know, every other label they give women, except for fantastic and fabulous. Mm -hmm. And and like, boy, you're multifaceted or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, so I, I remember the next phone call was we've cast this beautiful young model in the video and she's turned out to be amazingly candid and and talented and really good in, in the role. And I said, well, what's the theme of the video? He goes, oh, don't get mad. And I was like, all right. And he goes, well, kind of about how a woman is, Descending into madness and kind of going crazy. And I said, yeah, is that how you see me? And at that point in my life, I think people were a little worried about me because I'd had a child in 1977. I was single. I'd had these incredibly turbulent, insane relationships That made the front page. It wasn't even like I could have them in public. Um, I I mean, in private. (laughs) There was a little Freudian slip. (laughs) Um, Everything was very public. And, uh, you know, I think that drinking after the show, not before the show, thank goodness, (laughs) Mm, was uh, self-medicating and numbing. And I think Rick was afraid that if I didn't find... Some stability and some love and some security in my life that I might fall off the rails. I think he really envisioned that.
1: Right.
0: And then I had even more turmoil, and um, I said to him, "I said, well, what are you saying? That the symbolism?" It... He's like, "Bibi, I, I, I don't know what I, I don't know what I'm saying." That's, that was one yeah. of Rick's favorite lines. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. You take from what I'm saying what it means to you. Right. It's probably right. That's how he would get around
1: right. That's an answering answer. things. Yeah.
0: So I remember I had this show I had to do at the Bebop Cafe, and Brian Setzer was going to come up and sing a song with me. Mm-hmm. It was a couple of days after they had shot the drive video. Right, right, right. So Rick said, I'm coming. And I was really excited and happy. And I remember being on stage, singing with Brian and looking out the corner of my eye and seeing probably the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my life. Mm. And she was tall like him. You know, he was 6'3", or right. maybe more, I don't know. She was six one, five eleven, 5'11", mm-hmm. with shoes, probably one. But these giant people, which were rising above the crowd because Mm. of their height and I just remember her the the eye contact I made with her and I saw the chemistry and the love between them and I thought it was all very powerful it inspired Mm. me it did it made me want to try to have a healthy relationship with somebody you know and uh I met my boyfriend Charles right after that, and we formed the Gargoyles together. And we were together probably till about 90, 91. Then the Gargoyles broke up. And then I had to sort of give up music for a little while because mm. Liv's paternity became public.
1: Right. And, and that's probably managing that as a job. I, well, itself.
0: I, ha- I had to sort of protect what my concern more than anything was her identity getting mm. suffering. I mean, when you grow up and you think you're Liv Rundgren mm-hmm. and then suspect when you're nine, that you're not Liv Rundgren, but you're Liv Tyler. Mm-hmm. And then when you're 11, it's confirmed. It's important to give as much foundation as possible. So I had to make a tough choice, not one that many artists do easily. I had to put myself on the second burner, you know, I had to I had to give it up. I had to like just say, "Okay, the most important thing right now is her mental health, her well-being and her stability." And her identity
1: and this was before, and i don't I don't mean to be facetious at all i 'm actually being honest like this was before parents cared about their children's mental illness, like were clear like knew that mental illness was a, like not mental illness I'm sorry their mental health like, mental health yeah like parents parents well, at that I, time didn't necessarily prioritize their children's mental health you know you were you were forward thinking to do so
0: i didn't want to contribute to her having any kind of see, I grew up without a father. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of um, identity issues, self-worth issues. I didn't know I was pretty. People would say, you're so pretty. And I would go, am I? Right. Like I had no, that's why when you ask me, have you always been so confident? Mm. I'm not sure if it's confidence or or that I just know myself. Right, right. You know, that I've accepted it Mm. i've accepted that i'm who i am i'm always going to be like a a cult figure or somebody that's um the best kept secret i remember when they used to say new york's best kept secret (laughs) and then i moved here nashville's best kept secret and i thought really i'm i'm almost famous all the time i'm always everybody's best kept secret and i thought Is that a bad thing or a good thing? And then Beverly Keel, my friend, the writer, Mm -hmm. said, that's a great thing. Right. Start loving that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So I thought, hmm. She goes, you'll have a lot of longevity. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because I guess there's some truth to that. Because when you don't have, when you haven't sold like 100 million albums, you're not having to live up to that every single time you make art.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Every. But, but you, you're, you're aware enough of the, the, the things that come up with that to watch out for, say, if your daughter is becoming famous. As oh, yeah, she well, my
0: daughter, uh, it was obvious in 91 when her paternity became public to the world
1: right.
0: um, that there was this special being that what happened to her would have happened without the special effects mm-hmm without the glitz and the glam, even though it, it was an incredibly unique story. I said, Liv, I've known actresses that make up stories this good right. to add a, a little spice to their resume or to their story. Liv didn't have to make up any stories. Her story was already pretty unusual right. and pretty wonderful if, if you think about it but she um adjusted beautifully to the change because of the amount of love she received Mm -hmm. from everybody involved right and um stephen really put on his his big excuse me his big boy pants i don't know can stephen wear big boy pants (laughs) I don't know. It Seems me. like they'd
1: be really skinny. Yeah, little, <laughs> little skinny big boy pants. I envy L- that. I envy that little, man's body every time I see teeny. it.
0: <laughs> we'll call them big elf pants. But um, he uh, he's always been a very. Uh, he's another one that that's always been one of my best friends. Yeah, and does things for me that nobody else has ever done, like mm-hmm. Mother's Day. Year before last, two thousand eighteen. No, eighteen. Not year before. Mother's Day, Fontanelle, thirty-five thousand people. Mm. I'm standing on the side of the stage, and I hear, "Is BB Buell in the house?" He's doing "Train <laughs> Kept a Rolling," and he brings me up on stage to do "Train Kept a Rolling." Oh, and sweet. I mean, we kicked ass. It yeah. was it was amazing. You can probably watch a video on YouTube.
1: I will watch the video uh, on uh, YouTube. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Pretty awesome. Yeah. He and seems like a sweet guy. Steven is sweet. Yeah. Um, but he's also not. You know, he's yeah. got he's a businessman, he's tough. Sure. He's like steel sometimes. Sure. <laughs> I you don't want to see him when he's mad about something going wrong on stage. Right. And oh yeah. He's a perfectionist. Yeah. He is one of those people that has to have his finger in every aspect of everything. Mm-hmm that goes with his
1: art. Right. Right. Yeah. So so your daughter's been in the public eye for for how long? 25 years now. Maybe. She's what? She's been in the public eye for Well, like she's 42
0: years. and she did some modeling at 14 and 15, her first movie at 16. And then she did three movies and then the Aerosmith video. Right. There's so many people out there that, that think fast. that the Aerosmith video was the first thing that she did. Right. No. Liv had made three movies by the time she did the Aerosmith yeah. video for were crazy. You,
1: were you cautious around that time? Were you worried? Of course I
0: was. I turned down every slasher teen movie <laughs> that came her way. Good idea. <laughs> and many of... A bunch of them did. Sure. I also smartly and... I don't know how I knew, avoided Harvey Weinstein.
1: Oh, good. I had, I just... Well, it seems like maybe you are, you and your time had been around people like that Well, sometimes. it's funny.
0: Liv has said recently in an interview, because somebody said to her, did you ever have... She said, are you kidding? My mother was a pit bull. <laughs> I, no. He never got near me.
1: <laughs> Good.
0: <laughs> the closest he got to, to my daughter was a phone call when he was trying to convince her to, to do this vampire movie that Christina Ricci ended up doing. And I remember him saying to me on the phone, well, if she does this, I'll make sure she does a lot of my other projects i said harvey it doesn't work like that you don't give somebody like a project that you're having a hard time casting and then say oh and after they have do this this honker i'll give her like this wonderful a-list project i said that doesn't make sense to me yeah and he said, "Listen, Mom." He goes, "I think I know a little bit more about this than you do." And I said, "Well, you know what? Obviously, you don't, yeah. because she's not doing the vampire movie. Yeah. The end." Yeah. And I remember him being so furious at me. And the next time I ran into him, he was with was Renee Zellweger, mm-hmm. who I got to be very friendly with on Empire Records. Mm-hmm. When Liv was sixteen, mm. which was uh, her second film, yeah, and not uh, a bad
1: not a bad second film.
0: And <laughs> and uh, no, it was her third actually, because yeah. her first was was that Silent Fall with mm. Richard Driver. Then she did Heavy, which is oh one yeah, of, I that's a great movie, which yeah. is one of my favorites. Oh. And then Empire
1: Records. Sure. So you saw Renee Zellweger in oh Frank yeah, King.
0: yeah, and she was with Harvey. Sure. And I remember her coming over to hugging me and she's like, Harvey, do you know BB? And I thought, Oh, here we go. I'm the anti-vampire movie. Mm-hmm. And even though Liv would have made a incredible vampire, mm-hmm. it was just a really bad script. Sure. It just was you know, I was really picky about the scripts at that point. Mm-hmm. I I can't explain it. But this was later. This was after I wasn't working for Live anymore when, when I ran into him with right. Renee. Um, and he went, Oh, of course I, I know Bibi. Yeah. He goes, how you doing Bibi? And I was like, I'm fine, Harvey. How are you? He goes, I'm just great. Isn't Renee fantastic? And I said, yeah, she really is. I said, I've I've known that for a long time. He goes, yeah, it seems that you've always sort of known things before they happen. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you're right. I do. And I said, I'm kind of psychic, Harvey. Oh and God. I just remember that being like this, you know, it was an okay moment. Sure. But I remember every single time I looked to the left or the right, he was looking at me out of the corner of right. his eye. I, you know, as people, somebody said to me once, did he ever come on to you? I was like, are you kidding? I think he was terrified of me. <laughs> I think he was afraid I'd knife him or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, and <laughs> people in that position, the last thing they want to think is that they know someone who can see them, you yeah,
0: know? <laughs> I can see right. (laughs) through him trust me and my daughter she's a smart cookie too she didn't like the script she didn't like his attitude about it Mm -hmm. well come up to my and that was the killer come up to my office and let's talk about it what if she had gone right she might have been one of those girls right but Liv's like no i don't want to talk about this movie harvey i'm not doing it
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah well that's great
0: so He never tried to hire her for anything ever again, thank God. Mm -hmm. Because what if my baby had been one of those? I'd be in jail right now because I would have had to have killed him. I would have had to have, with my bare hands, ripped his throat out or something. So thank God (laughs) we survived that. No, my daughter has always very, very wisely, even after I gave up the, the seat, she's remained... A. Yeah. Um, it's just, she's, she's just got that thing.
1: Right. Heavy, man. That's a great, that was a great movie. And the, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting having, you know, cause she was in The Leftovers, uh, obviously, and brilliant in that. Oh just, my God. Just Episode so eight.
0: What was it? Season four? Season, yeah.
1: Season three. The last season.
0: The one where, no, th- yeah, three yeah. Where the grenade oh, on yeah, the Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I turned to my husband and I said, I don't know her.
1: <laughs> well, because it's, it's it's so interesting. She's always been in the public eye. She's been she has been such an incredible sweetness about her. And then when she does that, you're like, oh. okay. And how
0: about when she raped that boy? <laughs> oh my god! It's just I, I I I just I just couldn't believe it. I I was so proud at her right. range and her right. talent right. and the richness of the performance. And I knew right then and there that things were going to get really interesting with her career. And right. I'm very proud of the choices and you know i'm not like uh, you know i'm not like a chris jenner i don't have the momager gene because mm-hmm. i'm an artist right. so when i when i look at her mm-hmm. i look at her as another artist admiring another artist right. and she know you know i love uma thurman to me live is like one of those rare unicorns mm-hmm. like uma like these girls that just surprise you they come yeah. out of left field one day and do a part and you go what right. that's incredible and then she did Gunpowder, right the hbo i don't know if you yeah. saw that yeah, one i did and i'm like okay she's mm. knocking it out of the part and then she just brought it home with harlots right. i mean it was just like yeah. oh, my oh my god so i am loving the richness and 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 the adventure that she's bringing to her roles Mm -hmm. and I know now I made the right choice cause Paulina and I had a falling out early in our friendship Mm. because Paulina wanted Liv to go with elite models and I said to Paulina, no, we're gonna go with a very small agency because I really want her to have a long career and I think she's leaning towards being an actress. She keeps talking about it. And then we went on this trip to the Amazon where she did bongo jeans. She was fifteen. We had been in the middle of the jungle for two weeks with mosquitoes as big as chihuahuas, and we were had not showered with hot water. We, it was like, you know, in the jungle, the right. real jungle, not <laughs> not the pretend jungle, but the Amazon when it was still the Amazon, right. and. um she turned to me and she said, Mom, I think when we get back home, I really want to concentrate on being an actress. Mm. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So, but Pauline and I, of course, made up, mm-hmm. but yeah. I I think I put the kibosh on the modeling thing right. right away. I mean, it was good for her to get the experience of being on time, to be responsible, mm-hmm. To do good work, you know, to do a good job—that's one thing that modeling does teach a young girl. If she isn't being poisoned by trying to be too skinny and mm-hmm. all the pressures that comes with it, it is a good discipline. Uh, you have to be on time, or you don't have a career. Right. It's just simple. Mm-hmm. First time you're late as a model,
1: yeah,
0: they'll—that's f- it. You're done. Mm-hmm. So it taught her a lot about responsibility and being on time. So by the time she started being an actress and memorization and all that came into the mix, all her ADD and all the stuff, attention deficits and all that uh, dyslexia. I've got it all. Her dad does, too. Um, Most of us do. Us Creative types. uh, It just sort of really honed. Hmm. the, The discipline of acting worked. Something about that job and that craft connected with live
1: right right what do you th- what do you wish what so when people when people think about you they think particular things you said they think sort of the the there's the model stuff and there's your associations with particular people and your your just oh, what's
0: the new one they call me now pop culture icon Is that- <laughs> That that's my
1: favorite. What do you wish people said about? Well, that you? is
0: very flattering. I'm like, geez, <laughs> really? Do I deserve that? Isn't I Andy Warhol a pop culture icon? I didn't know. So, you, you know, as if you live long enough and you mm. accept who you are long enough, tags like that start coming your way. Mm. Yeah. You know, you you'll see things about. I read so much stuff about myself that isn't true, like mm. stuff that never happened. Like where I could prove I was sitting in my house watching all my children or something (laughs) when this happened, this crazy thing over here that they say happened with somebody I've never met. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've read that I've dated people I've never even met before. Right. Right. Uh, Seriously. Yeah. So I have to read a lot of stuff about myself that's hurtful and painful and kind of confuses me. And then other times I'll, you know, put on the computer. And I, I, I try to lim- limit myself to 30 minutes a day on the mm-hmm. computer because mm-hmm. I don't think it's a healthy place. Sure. I think it zaps our health and I think it zaps our creative yeah. energy. Uh, remember when we didn't have all that stuff? Right. I certainly right. Boredom
1: is a gift. I, hmm? Boredom is a gift. That's where we come up with other ideas.
0: <laughs> yeah, you had to go outside and play yeah. when you were a kid. You had to like draw. You had to read. You right. know, I don't know. I, I I find the computer. I the whole thing's dangerous. Mm-hmm. The fact that Donald Trump can tweet a hundred times in less than twenty four hours, right. and that's okay with 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 his followers, right. or that's okay,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, that bothers me a lot. Yeah, and um. I don't know. I think I've come to accept that there's, there's a variety of ways people are going to perceive you mm-hmm. and what people think of you is really none of your business.
1: <laughs> Can we end there? Cause that's perfect. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. You're so generous. I really appreciate it. <laughs> All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Nashville Demystified. Thanks to Jesse LaFontaine for all things related to sound post-production. Hey, every episode has a show-specific illustration provided by my longtime friend Tim Burns. They are pretty great. Check it out. Follow us on all the places. Subscribe. Do all that. I'm grateful that you listened to this show. Thank you so much, all.